You're listening to the Your Knee, Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Adam Rosen. I'm a fellowship-trained, board-certified orthopedic surgeon who specializes in knee replacement. Here I'll talk to you about common knee complaints and other orthopedic issues. We'll cover other important health-related topics, all of which are meant to helpfully answer some of your questions and help improve the quality of your life. Thanks for listening, and on with the next episode. Hello and welcome back. This is Adam Rosen, and you're listening to the Your Knee, Your Health podcast. Well, just recently we had an episode where I talked about dislocation and sex after total hip replacements, but what I realized is I haven't really covered total hips um, in a previous episode. So this is predominantly a knee and health podcast, but I am an orthopedic surgeon, and as a joint replacement surgery, I still do perform total hip replacements. Me personally, I'm a knee guy. I like knees. I like taking care of knee arthritis patients. Um, I like the surgery. I find it more technically demanding and complicated, um, and even the big complex knee revisions. You see a lot of surgeons that actually prefer hip replacements, um, and when you ask them, a lot of times it's mainly because the patients just do better quicker, um, and that is true. You know, on average, hip replacement patients will have less pain after that surgery. They will have a shorter recovery time. And also, the thing that we still don't understand is most patients that have a hip will feel that the hip is a lot more natural to them. There's a scoring system you may have heard me talk about in previous talks, um, what's called the forgotten joint score. And most patients, when you test them on the scoring system, will forget that they had a hip replacement where most knee replacement patients always remember which knee they had operated on. So, you know, briefly what a hip replacement is and how it's different or similar to a knee replacement is in a hip replacement, we go in and we take a saw and we cut off the ball. So the hip is made of a ball and socket joint. So you have your thigh bone and when you grab your hip on the side, the bump that you feel is what's called the trochanter where a bunch of muscles and tendons attach. But further in where you can't touch is what's called the neck. So think of the neck as a tube and on top of the neck is a ball and the ball is what sits in the socket. So it's that ball that loses the cartilage and the socket that loses cartilage that will cause pain. And you can get bone spurs, which will limit your motion. So we have to go in and restore that anatomy and restore the mechanics of the joint. So the first thing that you do is you cut the ball off. And then depending on the surgeon, some will do the thigh bone side first and some will do the cup side first. So I predominantly do the cup next. So what we do is once we get the ball out of the way, you can see the cup. And what we do is remove any remaining cartilage or loose bodies, and then you smooth out the cup. You do this with what's called a reamer or a grater. And if you can think of taking a cheese grater, as weird as it may sound, um, and kind of melting it and then curving it and making it basically a half circle, we have a rack of them. And they go in one millimeter increments from very small, like 20, 30 millimeters up to size 80 millimeters. And what you do is based on the patient and size, you start with a particular size. And your goal is to take any misshapen oblong oval cup, any remaining cartilage bones first, and smooth it out so you mill a perfectly round circular section inside the pelvis. And you want to see good healthy bleeding bone once you remove the cartilage. Once you've done that, you then implant a cup. And for the most part, most cups are two parts. You have a metal shell, so it's a half of a circle, And then inside that goes a liner of some sort, metal, ceramic, or most commonly plastic. So I always tell people, imagine if you cut a racquetball and a tennis ball in half. 
The tennis ball, the roughened yellow side on the outside, is the roughy, sticky part, and that sticks to the bone where the bone has to grow into that. Sometimes we supplement this with screws. Once that is put in there, then you put in a liner, whether or not it's ceramic or metal or most typically plastic, and that snaps in. So imagine half of a racquetball, if they were perfectly sized, the half of the racquetball would fit inside half of the tennis ball, and that's the cup side. On the ball side, we then have a stem, and the stem you can put in one of two ways. You can glue it or cement it, or you can what's called press fit it. So if we press fit it, there's different shapes and sizes, and you basically take an upside down pyramid and wedge that into the top of the bone. If you're cementing it, you prepare the bone similarly, but just prior to putting in the actual stem, you wash and dry the canal and you put cement, basically like an orthopedic glue, and then you put the stem in the cement while it's starting to get sticky and you hold it in position while it fully cures, which takes about 10 minutes. And then on top of that stem, there's a little point. So imagine stick your finger out. That point is called the trunnion. And on top of that goes a ball. And the ball can come in ceramic or metal. And they're all different shapes and sizes, which allow us to put that together to match your anatomy well. And then the ball gets reduced into the plastic, metal, or ceramic socket. And then the tissue gets closed. And then you're able to get up and stand and walk and do all the normal things because we've treated you. We've gotten rid of the arthritis. So that's a really, really brief overview of what a hip replacement is. Um, definitely talk to your surgeon or doctor because there's a lot more discussion that has to go into the details for you based on your health conditions and your anatomy and what the complications may be for you. That's a whole separate discussion. The thing, though, that I want to talk about, because this is the most common question that we get today, is, well, what about the approach? Do you do the anterior? I personally do not, and I'll tell you why. Um, there are a lot of people that do the anterior. I know a lot of friends and I have a lot of partners that do it. And again, I'm a big knee guy. I like doing knees. I'd be happy to do knees the rest of my life and give all the total hip replacements to my partners. But I love taking care of my total hip patients because again, they do great. You know, you take people with horrible pain and disease um, and you can fix them and they get better. The Lancet, which is actually a medical journal, about a decade ago came out with a, a journal article um, and they talked about operation of the century. And they actually termed that hip replacement was the operation of the century when you looked at the improvements in patients' quality of life. So it is a great surgery. Now, the anterior approach has been around for over 100 years. There's lots of different ways to get into the hip. There's this direct anterior, anterolateral, a true lateral, a posterior lateral. So there's lots of different ways to get in. And the confusion, I think, for a lot of people is that many people think this anterior is new. You know, and again, the anterior approach has been around for hundreds of years. I think the first description was over a century ago, but it's been modified and changed. What really changed about 12, maybe 15 years ago was a company came out with a new table, and the new table made it a little easier and simpler to do hip replacements through this direct anterior approach. And nowadays, actually, a lot of doctors do what's called off-table, so they don't even use the table. And the confusion, I think, that began in the beginning is the table was marketed, and there were some studies that came out and showed that the anterior approach of today, um, and they compared the results and statistics to other approaches from 10, 15, 20 years ago. So anything is going to be better 20 years down the road. So it looked like this huge improvement. But when you look at studies and statistics, the hard part is that you can kind of make anything that you want. So I could sit down and show you a bunch of articles that show that the anterior approach is better. And I could also show you articles that show that it's the same as other approaches. And I can show you other articles that have shown that there actually may be a higher complication rate with the anterior. So the reality is that at this point, 
if you talk to a person, some surgeons definitely feel strongly. I have some friends that love the anterior. Well, why do they do it? Well, if somebody had a high complication rate, maybe they had a long length of stay with their patients, pain, dislocation, they may have been looking for some alternative. You know, some people didn't have a big complication rate, but they've been doing this for 25 years and they were a little bored and they thought it would be fun to do something different. You know, there's some patients um, that they've then taken care of that have done really well with it and then they've adopted that. But there's been some studies, we saw this with hip resurfacing, which is an implant which is similar but different than hip replacements, that there are some patients that sort of self-select. So if somebody's young and healthy and does the internet search and comes in, you know, overall that patient's going to be more motivated and may do well, which can skew the results in the statistics. But the thing that I always tell patients is, you know, really talk to your doctor because at the end of the day, you want a doctor that you feel comfortable with and that's going to treat you well. So you want to know and ask them, you know, what is your complication rate? What is your length of stay in the hospital? What is your dislocation rate? What is the average time that your patients spend on a walker or a cane? You know, how long do they limp? You know, things like that, that's important because there is a 50 patient learning curve approximately. So if your doctor is starting to do the anterior, but they've only done five, you know, you don't want to be their guinea pig because studies have shown that some of those patients do have a higher complication rate. And there's some patients that are not great candidates. So people that have certain deformities or they've had prior surgery or certain body habitus, it may not be safe to do an anterior approach. And your doctor may say, yes, I do multiple approaches, but for you, this would be a better approach than the anterior. And the difficult thing that I run into, because some patients that I meet, they're just comfortable with the doctor and they want them to take you know good care of them. Uh, but I meet some people that are really, really interested in one way or the other. And what I tell those patients is that you really should go with your gut and find somebody because if I do a posterior approach and you have a 24-hour stay at the institution and you go home with the walker and you get off the walker in a day and you get off the cane in a week and you have no pain and no limp and you don't dislocate, don't get infected, you're happy as a clam. You know, you have no pain and you had a great recovery. But if you really wanted an anterior approach, because we can't guarantee anything. Um, we can tell you the numbers and statistics, but you can't guarantee the outcome for everybody with 100% certainty. And if you have a slightly longer recovery than you expected or a limp or pain, you know, or this or that, you may always question and wonder because we've talked about this before. The mind is an interesting thing. You're going to always question, should I have had the anterior? So what I do is I say, hey, here's the cards of my partners. Go and talk to them. You know, go hear what they have to say. And feel free to choose who you feel most comfortable with. If you want the anterior, have the anterior. I remember one of my patients, and I felt bad, you know, for her neighbor, but, you know, her neighbor was having a hip replacement almost on the same day at a different hospital. And, you know, her neighbor was really, really pushing the idea, I can't believe you're going to your doctor that does the posterior. Um, you know, you should have the anterior. It's the only way to go. And unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, my patient did great. You know, she was one of these ones that, you know, came in in a month like nothing happened and had a great recovery and no pain and no walker, no cane. Um, and her neighbor had a complication from the anterior approach. Um, so, you know, it just doesn't mean that any in any um, approach is foolproof. You know, there are nerves and vessels in the front of the hip and they can get injured. There are nerves in the back of the hip. They can get injured. You can dislocate if you have an anterior approach. You can dislocate if you have a posterior approach. More typically, you'll dislocate out the front in an anterior, out the back in a posterior, um, but you can still dislocate through both. You know, And the idea of cutting muscle, that's another kind of question and concern that people have. Well, in the front, anatomically, there's a bunch of what we call strap muscles. So when you make the skin incision, 
you see these muscles, think of like, put your second and third finger together on your right and left hand. So what you're looking at is one strap muscle on the left and one strap muscle on the right. And what we do is split the interval between those two and do the work sort of between there. Um, whereas on the back, you have this big butt muscle. So think of it like your hand almost spread out and between your fingers are these little white fascial planes. So we basically go between the plane. You're not cutting it across the grain. Um, the capsule, which is basically the bag of fluid that surrounds your hip, was always cut out in the old posterior approaches. And that's when dislocations like 20 years ago used to be very high. And what they realized is we don't want to cut it out. We want to split it like a T and then repair it anatomically at the end, which is how I do it. And most surgeons do the posterior approach. Um, and that has lowered the dislocation rate, where on the anterior, a lot of times for visualization, they cut it out. There's also a tendon that most people are familiar with called the piriformis. And it's typically right in the way of where you're going to put the stem. And a lot of studies have shown that when you do the anterior, you can't see it because it's behind and you may bugger it up with the brooch, which is basically the temporary stem that you're trying to trial or size, where on the back, we do cut it off the bone um, to get access to where we're going. And then at the end, repair that tendon back to where it came from. And the other thing, which is really difficult, but a lot of patients um, with hip pain and hip arthritis have is on the side of your hip are these tendons called the abductors, um, the gluteus medius and minimus. And it's not uncommon to have tears or partial tears of those tendons. Think of them like a rotator cuff tear of your hip. I have a whole nother talk um, uh, and episode on this in the past, but you can see them and repair them from the back quite well. It's very hard to see and visualize them through an anterior approach. So if at the end of listening to this, you're confused, that's okay. It's kind of the point, you know, this is informed consent. You know, I always tell people that, you know, there's some things that are easy. If you come in with a broken leg and your bone's sticking out of your skin, I'm going to say, hi, nice, pleased to meet you. You're going to the operating room. It's going to be washed out. But for a lot of injuries and problems, you know, there's a lot of options. And, you know, our job is to let you know what your options are and to let you, but help you, you know, make a decision. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the anterior posterior approach, you know, again, the every day you're going to find something different. You know, I know anterior people that love the anterior and that's okay. I think it's great. And I see my, my, uh, my colleagues and their patients do great. You know, I've done the posterior for, you know, umpteen years now. I know my complication rate, my complication rate's low, um, but nobody's complication rate's zero. And for me, it's hard to put 50 patients through a learning curve where I know my complication rate would go up. So for that reason, you know, I continue to do the posterior approach. But for those patients that are very um, strong about wanting an anterior approach, you know, I make the effort to say, here are other doctors that do it well. Um, and why don't you go and see them and talk to them and see which way you want to go. So a lot of information, hip replacements 101, and sort of the differences, nuances, similarities, um, and uh, the, the understanding of both anterior and posterior hip approaches. So if you uh, are just listening for the first time, welcome. Um, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. If you like what you're hearing, share it with a friend, share it with a family member, leave a review. It helps people like you uh, find this podcast. And in the meantime, stay safe. Until next time, I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Your Knee, Your Health podcast. Thanks for listening to the Your Knee, Your Health podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe so you'll be notified of future episodes. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. I'm your host, Adam Rosen, and until next time, stay safe.